the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. So a couple of announcements before we get into the message today. Uh, We're kicking off our Bag Hunger food drive for the Covington Food Bank, uh, which will start next Sunday, uh, April 7th, with distribution of bags around the North Shore. But we need a little help this Wednesday night, so if you want to come out and join us at 6.30 p.m. Wednesday, we're going to be assembling all the bags that we will distribute around the North Shore. And then on Sunday, we're going to send out teams right after church. We're having an all-ages service. It will be a quick one. Send people out to distribute bags. So join us in that. You can just show up this coming Sunday and be a part of that outreach right after church. And then we'll collect the bags the following weekend. For now, let's head to the talk. This is called Reconciled. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Cup. tell you, uh, I, I've been uh, down in the furthest reaches of Cajun country the last two days. I was, uh, there, there's a couple that uh, comes to church here. Some of y'all know him. He's the lead singer of uh, Cactus Thief who, who played at our um, Fall for Art. They got married down in the middle of nowhere uh, at the end of the world, Louisiana, uh, about 20 miles south of Iberia. And it was a wonderful thing last, yesterday. Um, that I got to officiate their wedding, so it's 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 lovely to see God's love in a in a couple of people and be a part of that. Of course, I'm a little tired because it was quite a long drive back last night. After we had quite a, a reception, Cajun band dancing. I'm, I hope nobody posted any videos of me trying to Cajun dance. Me and Dina have decided we are going to take lessons at the Abita Town Hall when they offer that next. <laughs> But, um, you know, it's, it's neat. So this morning, um, it, it's just, I just want to say, I, I enjoy, I'm, I'm rarely in the crowd here on a Sunday morning, and I just want to thank Zach and all the, all the musicians in the band. I, um, it, it's, nice to, uh, it's nice to be in the crowd and get to experience the presence of God, you know, out there. Um, uh, and, I, and, and how about that finance report? Yes, indeed. It's all good. I was feeling it. I was feeling it. Um, so this morning, <clears throat> the remainder of time we have, um, in, the, in the opening line of the Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all... Men are created equal and endowed by their creator God with certain unalienable rights, which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Out of all the founding documents and stuff that the founding fathers wrote, I think this is my favorite line because it is such a concise statement that is so dense with truth and beauty. Uh, You know, the founding of this country, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, you know. They're, they're, not everything was straightened out in the beginning when this country was founded, but embedded within this little statement are the, eventual, are, are the seeds which would see the eventual destruction of slavery, uh, the right of women to vote, the end of segregation, and so many other freedoms and opportunities for people in this country. 
But I have found myself the last few years really thinking a lot about this one line in there, the pursuit of happiness. It's, this is a revolutionary thing, by the way. The, the, like most people who've grown up in most parts of the world uh, would never have come across an idea like this, that everyone is created by God and has certain rights that are given to you, not by the government, but by God, the 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 the, the the right to life, the right to live freely, and the right to pursue happiness. And I, I agree with those things. I'm not, I'm not here to do an a American history lesson, though. But I think this, this phrase, the pursuit of happiness, is interesting. It's, it's, it's a brilliant statement because it doesn't say you're guaranteed happiness as a citizen of the United States, but you're guaranteed the right to pursue happiness. But pursuing happiness is a weird thing. And you've probably noticed this in your life before. Because happiness is, you know, getting happiness is actually kind of paradoxical. Because oftentimes when we pursue happiness, happiness eludes us, right? I put a couple of quotes in your, um, in your outline. Uh, the, the first one's from Henry David Thoreau. Happiness is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more it will elude you. But if you turn your attention to other things, it will come and sit softly on your shoulder. Or as C.S. Lewis once wrote, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will get neither comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. See, the problem with pursuing happiness is that we're all broken people, right? Right? Look at somebody next to you and say, you're broken. Bob Dylan had a song. Everything is broken. We're all broken people. We all emerge into adulthood. We got issues. We've got hurts. We got wounds. We got disappointments. We got stuff that happened in our family, stuff other people have done to us. And then we've got the mistakes we've mad that made, mad mistakes as well, that have further compounded the destruction in our life. And so it's like, you get to adulthood, and if you seek happiness, is that, if that is the primary goal of your life, much of that happiness is actually going to be an avoidance of harsh and painful realities, right? I say this as somebody who's done this and still continues to do this. If, if, if you are simply seeking happiness, it will elude you. You may find it temporarily. This is, this is where I, you ever have these fantasies? I have them. I've got a com- confessions, pastor's fantasies. Sometimes I fantasize about, you know, I would just like to disconnect from technology and everything, go start an organic farm out in the middle of nowhere and just live off the land. Man, that sounds awesome. Here's what would really happen, though. I would get out there and I would learn farming is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or you may fantasize, I'm going to work all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slave away at my job for years so that when I retire, I can just sit on a beach in Costa Rica and drink pina coladas. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to sit on the beach for about three days and you're going to be like, wow, I'm ready to do something else. This is the thing that marketers and advertisers, they prey upon. If you buy this boat, 
or this RV, or you get this thing, it is going to make you feel awesome. It's going to make, and you start thinking, man, if I get this boat, I'm going to be out on Lake Pontchartrain every weekend, and I'm just going to be catching fish. And, and sure enough, you're going to be happy for a day or two or a weekend or two, or maybe even a few weeks if you're lucky. But after a while, you're going to realize that that boat doesn't really bring you happiness. That that sipping pina coladas on the, the beach isn't all that you hoped it would be. It really didn't answer the, the need for, for joy and contentment within your soul. See, the paradox of happiness is true, lasting happiness and joy and contentment within doesn't come from chasing it, but it comes from facing the things that you're most afraid of. You know, there's been a lot of studies on addictions over the last few decades, and what they've discovered is, um, you know, the, the, the traditional thinking was that you get addicted to something because it's addictive, you know, like heroin. Uh, you know, back in the, in, the, in the early 70s, there was a panic because you had all these Vietnam veterans, I mean, Viet, pe- people serving in Vietnam, and many of them were doing heroin, and they're like, oh, no, we're going to have this huge epidemic of people who are addicted to heroin when they come back. And what they realized is actually most of the people that came back from Vietnam that were doing heroin, once they got back into something that was meaningful where their life wasn't threatened and they actually had family connections and stuff, they quit cold turkey. No problems at all. Actually, there's a lot of people in this room that have done heroin. It was called morphine. You went into the hospital. You had surgery. But you were injected with some high-grade stuff. And and most people can come out of that experience without ever being addicted to heroin. <laughs> it's not that it's not just that something is highly addictive. What they they're, they're finding is what leads to addiction oftentimes is that you feel alone. You feel disconnected. There is pain in your life that you are looking to drugs or food or gambling or shopping or whatever your thing is to alleviate the pain of that, to cover it up. But that happiness is short-lived, and it always takes a little bit more and a little bit more until, you know, it doesn't even work at all. True happiness comes not through chasing happiness or not even aiming at happiness, but in facing the thing that you're most afraid of, the thing that you're most afraid to see. And oftentimes, that thing that you're most afraid to see is actually in you. It's inside. I say this because... You know, about, I, I shared a little bit of this a couple of months ago, um, but, you know, probably only, you know, a fourth of y'all were here anyway. Um, so I'm going to share it again. Uh, <laughs> sh- shut up, man. Uh, about a year ago, January 2018, I was doing a, a little retreat uh, out at Bogachita State Park where we had our... Uh, our camp out last weekend, which if you missed it, you missed out. We had an awesome time. We got like the two best days of camping uh, ever in Louisiana. And we even had live gators. So um, I've been bumping into gators a lot. The place I did the wedding yesterday, they put down an 11-foot alligator on Friday so it wouldn't bother the ceremony. Anyway, I digress. Back to happiness. Um, So 
January 2018, I did this little prayer and study retreat to, to kick off the year. I was doing some reading, a lot of reflection over my own life, and just trying to get into a place of clarity as, as we were jumping into the year. And this one particular morning, I got up and I made a fire, and I'm sitting out there by the fire with a notebook, and I'm just reflecting over my life. And as I'm reflecting over my life, I was reminded of a passage that I have probably quoted here more than any other passage from the Bible. It is core to everything that we do here. And it comes from when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in in all of Scripture? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, and the second command is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. We say that's the heart of everything we do here as a church. And I've spoken on that passage so many times. And yet, as I was sitting by the campfire that morning, God began to remind me there is a love that you've been missing all these years. And it's right there. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well... I don't know about that, God. What, what the heck does that even mean? If you've grown up in church, you know, I mean, we are told, you know, I mean, p- part of what is central to Christian faith is that you value others, you esteem others, you serve others, you love other people. Sometimes it's harder to love yourself, isn't it? It's just me. I know some of you. It's, it's very easy to love me. What's well, not to love, man? And I was sitting there by the fire, and I'm like, God, what does it even mean to love myself? I mean, like, I know it's not being narcissistic. I know it's not pride. I know it's not just being full of yourself, thinking you, you know, more highly of yourself than you ought to. What does it mean to truly love yourself? And I felt like God began to say, well, what's it mean for you to love other people that you care about? So that's where I started. How do I love my kids? How do I love my wife? How do I love my friends? And I realize there's something in that, that, that it's, there's not just the emotion of feeling warm feelings towards them, especially when you got kids. Sometimes you don't feel warm feelings towards them, but you care for them. You want the best for them. You want them to learn to, to, to be compassionate people. You want to, them to make wise choices and wise decisions. And even when they fail, that they would learn something from that. You want them to have what they need to, to you know, have a, a life. You know, have all the things that they need to, to, to thrive. And so I started looking at my own life over the past few years. Kind of trying to look at my life from the outside Look at the way Crispin's been living his life. And, you know, the the good thing about trying to look at my life from the outside is I also know it from the inside. I can see things about myself that other people can't. And I began to look over the last several years uh, of my life, and I began to ask myself, what would it mean if I cared for myself the same way that I care for my kids, for my wife, for my friends? What does Crispin need? And so I tried to look at Crispin's life, and uh, I, I sat there for about a half hour, and I came up with a good list of things. And that was the first time in my life I'd ever really seriously grappled with what it means to actually love myself. And that set me on a, a very interesting journey over the past year. But when I got, but that was just step one, because step two happened back in the closing days of my sabbatical that I took over the summer. I'm like three days away from the end, and I had experienced so many wonderful things, but this one day really brought it all together. 
And I'm sitting on my back porch in Abita Springs about 9 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday morning. And I was talking with the Lord and I felt prompted to put a song on. And this song was a song that I wrote uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. I had a band called Mary's Den. Any Mary's Den fans in here? Okay. Woohoo! <laughs> I had this band called Mary's Den, and we traveled around the country and, you know, did worship, played some festivals and stuff like that, and it was a, it was a glorious uh, time when I was in it, but as often happens, this was like my mid-20s to like about 30 years old, what often happens once you get in your early 30s, you look back on that version of yourself that you were at 25, and you're like, oh my goodness, that dude thought he knew everything, and he was clueless. Anybody else have that experience? Yeah, and, and so, as, as Bob Dylan once uh, sang, you know, I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. And that, that was kind of the way that I began feeling most of my 30s. I look back to that time in my life, it was a wonderful time when I was in it, but when I could see it in the rearview mirror, I was like, oh my gosh, that dude was so confident, bordering on arrogance, and yet so lacking in self-awareness and some of the things that I believed and some of the ways I practiced my faith, I was just, it made me cringe. And I spent so much of my life trying to put that guy in the rearview mirror, <laughs> like, like get as far away from that guy as I could. And so I hadn't listened to Mary's Den albums in years because that represented that time in my life. And yet this morning that I was sitting out on, that, on the porch that day, I felt prompted to put on this song from the, the last album we did before we broke up called Free, and the, and the song was called Walk With Me. And uh, I had just uploaded those albums to Spotify a few months before, not because I wanted to, but because there were people who were like, when are you going to put that up? So I, I, I turned it on on my phone, and I'm sitting there, and the chorus says this, walk with me as I travel down this road, never knowing for sure where it is that I'm going Come talk with me. I need to know I'm not alone. As I journey through this life, only you can live this life inside of me. And when it got to that chorus, I just began to sob. I mean, ugly cry. It was, and not just for like a couple of minutes, like for a long time, I began to cry as I began to realize God was in my entire journey. I began to look at my whole journey, even particularly the times that I had been ashamed of, and God was right there. And my sobbing began to turn into sorrow because I just felt like, God, I've... I've taken you for advantage. Like I, I have lived so much of my life, even in ministry sometimes, as if you weren't really there, as if you were just a, a belief in my head, if you were just some kind of doctrine or theology that I had to agree with, but you've actually been there. You've actually been present in the deepest recesses of my life. Beyond my consciousness, you have never left me. And in that moment, I just felt the love of God in a way that I never had before. I mean, it was, it was so 
beautiful. And I sat there on my back porch listening to this whole album, like on repeat a couple of times, which is the weirdest thing, you know, a version of myself from 18 years ago, testifying to my current self about God's love and God's goodness. And by the end of it, what started with tears ended with belly laughter. I'm just laughing (laughs) with the revelation of God's love and God's goodness. I was just laughing uncontrollable. I mean, and I even wanted to dance, which is a miracle. But I was still a little self-conscious because there were some squirrels that were watching me. So I did not take to to dancing around my backyard. (laughs) Takes a few drinks to get me there. But what I realized happened to me that day was I was reconciled to myself. I was reconciled to the version of myself that I wanted to deny. I was reconciled to this part of myself that I was doing everything to, to put in the rearview mirror, this, this version of myself of which I was embarrassed of. I was reconciled to that person. I saw that God loved that person. Even though he had very little self-awareness, even though he was way more confident than he ought to have been, even though he made his own mistakes, didn't always have a great attitude, God Love that version of me. And in that moment when I realized God loved that version of me, I loved that version of me. In that moment where I realized that God accepted that, I mean, God, God accepted that dude a long time ago. But when I consciously realized that, I could accept that person. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the months after that, you ever run into somebody that reminds you of a version of yourself in your past, and you're like, ugh. As I would bump into people along the way that reminded me of that version of myself, instead of just being aggravated with them, instead of just pushing them away, I could accept them. I could love them because I'd experienced reconciliation with myself. Because the reality is, most of the time, what we can't accept in other people is really what we can't accept within ourselves, right? Most oftentimes, what we judge and condemn in other people is either something we have faced, failed to see in ourselves, or it's something we think we're a lot better than them and we wouldn't have fallen in the same ways. You know, we think, I'm much. How many times do we, do you ever find yourself thinking about like Nazi Germany and you're like, man, how could so many people have gone on with Hitler? I wouldn't have done that. No, chances are you would have, and I would have. Most of us are not as good as we think we are. Most of us will fail in the ways that we think we are strong. I mean, even Peter, the rock, Jesus had to tell Peter, he's like, dude, Peter, I know you think you're something, and I called you rock, and you had this revelation, and I told you, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, but you're going to deny me. I won't deny you, Jesus. These other guys, they're going to deny you. I'm going to be there to the end. No, you're going to deny me before tomorrow sun comes up. We judge others. We can't accept others because we think we're better because we haven't either, either we haven't faced those things within us or we've never been tested in that area.
I say all this because the passage today from the lectionary is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 through 21. And it says this, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a beautiful passage. But what Paul is, and, and I'm going to probably take these verses a little nonlinear, nonlinearly. This is, this is really interesting because Paul says, from now on, we don't regard anyone the way that regular people in the world regard people. How do we regard people in the world? We regard people because of their position, their status in society. We regard them of their uh, wealth or, or, or how many letters they have attached to their name. Or we regard them according to, to some kind of identity marker or, or lack of, of money or lack of status. Or we, you know, we, we love to chop the world up into different types of people and, you know, Who's in, who's out. But Paul says from now on, we don't regard anybody that way. We regard people as if they were created in the image of God, as if they were indwelt by the very Spirit of God. You know, the, the, the ending line of this passage is kind of a, I've heard plenty of theologians kind of make this a lot more complicated than it is. You know, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. What, what the heck does that mean? Well, here's what I think it means. In the, in the prologue to the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, which in Greek means the, the organizing principle that holds the universe together. In the beginning was this universal thing that holds everything together, that created everything, and nothing was created outside of this word, this logos. And the word, the organizing principle that holds everything together and sustains everything, steps into our world and becomes one of us, moves into the neighborhood. The God that holds it all together stepped into our broken world and faced our world brokenness. This is what this means that we could come back into reconciliation with God, that we could live in harmony with the spirit that's already moving everywhere. We could live in harmony with that. So from now on, we don't just regard people by the titles that they have in this world and the way that you know, the, 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 the ones that are better off or, or worse off. We don't, we don't play that game. That's the, the, the oldest game in the world is dividing the world up into this group, this group, this person, that person, this status. We regard people as people who are created in God's image and filled with God's spirit, whether they are aware of that or not because what Paul is talking about is cosmic in scope that God was reconciling the world to himself this is cosmic in scope God was not just recognizing uh, reconciling just a, a handful of people he's reconciling the whole world including all of humanity 
to himself and not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us this message of reconciliation. From God's standpoint, reconciliation's already happened. It's already happened. Everybody, everything, the whole created order has been reconciled back to God in Jesus. I mean, even in Jesus, God becoming, the incarnation, that speaks of the reconciliation of divinity and humanity, of heaven and earth, in the person of Jesus. From God's standpoint, it's already a done deal. But from our standpoint, you know, reconciliation, it's a two-way street. I know therapist friends of mine, um, some of them do marriage counseling. I had to tell you, marriage counseling, man, that's a, that's a minefield. I props to people who can do that like eight hours a day, like, because it's not just like counseling one person, you know, you counsel one person, you're dealing with one person's problems. You counsel two people. Oftentimes couples don't come to therapy until things are so bad that one of them's like ready for a divorce. And it finally wakes the other one up like, okay, no, no, let's save this. And the other person's like, I'm done. And so, so in, in therapy, you're trying to help one person who wants to reconcile and the other one who's like, you know, I, I wanted to reconcile a few years ago, but forget it. And, and it, it's difficult because reconciliation actually takes two people that want the same thing. They got to get on the same page. From God's point of view, reconciliation's done. But for us, the ball's in our court. We have to live into that reality. We are called to live into that reality. We're called to announce to other people that to, to be reconciled to God. God's already, you've already got the spirit of God in your heart, whether you believe in Jesus or not today. If you are alive on planet earth, you have the breath of God, the pneuma, the ruach in, holy, in, in, the, in the Old Testament. The spirit of God is in your lungs. You already have God in your life. Live reconciled. Wake up to that. But here's the deal. Reconciliation, like repentance, we tend to think, I know when I first became a Christian, you think of a word like repentance is like, I went down to the front of the church and I prayed a prayer and I repented of my sins. As we, we think of it as a one-time deal, like just repented. Repentance means to change your mind. And I got to tell you, when I first decided to follow Jesus, I apologized for the things that I was doing at that point, but I could only apologize for the things that I knew were actually sin at that point. Like sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever, you know, whatever the, the, the run of the mill type of things that I was aware of. It took me about six or seven years before I started seeing some other sins that I didn't see on the front side, like my pride, my arrogance. It took me years to begin to see that repentance is a journey. We are always changing our mind as we go in relationship with God. It is not a one-time deal. It is a journey, but so is reconciliation. I'm telling you, that story I shared about, you know, back in August, here I am. I've been a Christian for 26 years, been in ministry most of that time, and yet there's still parts of my own heart that have yet to awaken to consciously be reconciled to God. It's a journey, folks. And Paul says, this is the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling to the world, to himself, in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. You know, the extent to which we count others' sins against them is the extent to which we haven't experienced conscious awareness of that reconciliation in our life. 
Think about that. Think about that this week. When you go about your week and you're tempted to hold somebody else's sins against them uh, or, or you get aggravated with somebody else or you want to judge somebody else, think, ask God, is there something in my life that I'm refusing to see about myself? Is there something within that I'm refusing to face because it's too painful that, that leads to this judgment? Is there something that has not awakened to the love of God in my heart? If you look at 12-step recovery, that's basically what recovery is doing, like getting you to face the stuff within. That's where the addiction actually comes from. It has nothing to do with alcohol. It's actually facing stuff within your own heart and soul and awakening to what God is doing. We don't take this part seriously, though. So much of the church in America is known for moral outrage, for pointing their finger at this group and that group, and you can get in, and and you can get in, but not you. (laughs) You're beyond the grace of God. Really? Really? All that shows is that most of the church in America, or at least the, the versions that we see publicly, much of it has failed to actually contend with the reconciliation that God has already wrought in Christ. It is a failure to actually have faith in what Jesus has done. About to preach, y'all. I'm serious. Like, like this is, this is we, we, we talk about faith as if it's just a matter of believing some ideas. It's not. It's actually trusting our life to the love that created the universe and holds it all together and was expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, that we are trusting in that. Even though it's, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe God would love me, especially some of the versions of myself. It's hard to believe that because I don't like that guy. <laughs> I hate that guy. I loathe what I am capable of doing. Sometimes the most radical thing is to believe, no, God absolutely loves that guy. Absolutely. Unconditionally. Unwaveringly. That may seem like a leap of faith, but I'm telling you, if you can begin asking God to meet you in those places, if you can seriously, when you feel outrage at somebody else, if you feel judgment welling up within your soul, if you feel those things, if you can press pause and just say, God, search me, know my heart, show me if there's any wickedness, if if I'm guilty of this sin, or if I'm just judging others because I've never been tested here, Lord, help me to accept this about myself, help me to accept your love and your goodness here. Because when we do that, we can really participate in this ministry of reconciliation that God in Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to himself and not counting our sins against us. Think about it. Jesus, hanging on the cross, he has faced the absolute worst that humanity can sling at him, the the combined brokenness and, and pain and hatred and violence inflicted on Jesus on the cross. And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Can we believe that? I know it's hard to believe. Yeah. We had a clap starter, but nobody got on board. No, that's the the good news, people. That is the good news. So all I say today is, if you've been reconciled with God, 
keep being reconciled with God. If you've never awakened to how much God loves you and how God has reconciled you and how God is not counting your sins against you, can you be crazy enough this morning to exercise trust in that? Can you just say, God, it seems too good to be true, but I stop. I, I just, I, I, I give my life to you. The good, the bad, my shame, my sorrow, my grief, I give it to you. We're going to close today by taking communion because I, lo- I love at the center, at the center of the Christian message, it's really a meal. <laughs> when Jesus has something to tell his disciples, the closing, right before he goes to the cross, he doesn't give them a sermon, he gives them a meal. This bread represents my body broken for you. He who became He who knew no sin became sin for us. He who knew no sin was broken for us that we could be made whole. We come and we take the cup representing the new covenant. God laid it down his life for us in human form so we could see it. So we're not left in the realm of just abstractions about the force of the universe. We actually see this is what God looks like as one of us. He's not just forgiven us. He's laid his life down. Let's take this message into us today in closing. Why don't you stand? I want to invite the communion teams up here. And if, you, if you're new to North Shore Vineyard, the way we, take, we receive communion here is somebody's going to look you in your eyes and offer you a piece of the bread and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. We take communion together. You dip that bread in the cup, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. In the remaining minutes, just come forward and we're going to take communion together. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, Do we have a... Oh, Margaret's on top of it. Join with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. You're welcome to come forth. This table is open to anybody that wants to move towards the Lord today.